you are trying to find somebody to run for president of what has come to be known as the deep state, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better qualified candidate than Michael Hayden. A retired and highly decorated Air Force four-star general, he served as director of the National Security Agency under Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. While there, in the days after 9-11, he implemented a controversial White House-ordered warrantless wiretapping program that bypassed the special foreign intelligence surveillance court that had been set up by Congress to oversee such practices. He later served as director of the CIA during a tumultuous period when aggressive interrogation practices, which critics likened to torture, were exposed and drone strikes targeting suspected terrorists were ramped up dramatically. Now he's a private citizen who maintains close ties to the intelligence community. And he's written a new book in which he excoriates President Trump, calling him a useful idiot of Vladimir Putin and a congenital liar who is unable to distinguish the truth. We'll talk to Michael Hayden about why he's speaking out right now and what he can tell us about Trump's relationship with the agencies he once served on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, Dan... The head spins. Uh, this was a, quite a week. You know, I gotta, I'm going to cut you off right here because what? we say that every time, right? And I'm beginning to think yeah. it's actually – these are actually typical weeks, typical weeks in the Trump administration, extraordinary in the context of previous presidents and administrations. But look, what happened this week? You know, you, you had a major leak – uh, uh, on on the you know what's going on in the Trump investigation. And by, by the, the way, the, we got with, the that's we got right, the leak sitting, sitting next to us right here. now on the right. the forty nine the, the forty nine questions. Yeah, uh, you get another you got another Trump lawyer hired and another one exiting. That yeah. ha- seems to happen every week. Right, and you got new revelations on Stormy Daniels. Um, so how's that different? <laughs> well, it does seem like we have two looming legal confrontations right now. Um, one is between the president and um, uh, and uh, Robert Mueller uh, about whether he's going to do this interview. And uh, if he doesn't, uh, what what Mueller's next play and there, will be. And there's new reporting on Mueller uh, saying that he might issue a subpoena, right? And, so, And the other legal confrontation is with Stormy Daniels, which is now uh, ramped up because uh, of the disclosure that the president actually reimbursed Michael Cohen for that $130,000. And I was struck this morning, and I want to ask uh, uh, Michael Schmidt, the uh, uh par excellence New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who is our guest here today about um, uh, how he interprets um, a, a tweet that was just came this morning, not from the president, 
but from Stormy Daniels herself. And I don't know if you've seen it, Michael, but she tweeted this morning, have you seen my tits? Of course you have. I don't jog anywhere, so I'll just sit here sipping my coffee and talking shit. Um, um, Michael, how do you interpret that uh, in light of this uh, lubing legal clash? I have no idea. You've moved me off the plate pretty easily here. I'm, uh, well, that was our goal. Yeah, we're, no, I'm completely you know, flat-footed here. Was swollen well, doesn't I mean bullet it, surprises? But, there, but you know. there is. I mean, yeah. There is some legal significance to her choice of words, isn't there, Mike? Um, yeah. I mean, and by the way, she did, and maybe this is a little more on point, just before that tweet, I don't think Cohen is qualified to, quote, clean up my horse's manure too soon. Now, I guess that was sort of playing off uh, what Rudy Giuliani had to say about what the purpose of what Michael Cohen was doing, correct? Who are you asking? Um, I, I'm asking our I'm, guest. I'm still trying to get over this tweet. You know, I spent all morning trying to look at <laughs> what Giuliani had said about the Comey firing and how yeah. that was the latest evolution of the understanding. And I was reading back through the Comey memos. I can't really move on a year later, I guess. Yeah. I'm sort of a one-trick pony. And then I hear that tweet and... Um, I'm still trying to. <laughs> still trying <laughs> all to right, all right. Let's go back to your comfort zone yeah, and talk about uh, uh, Giuliani's comments about the Mueller probe in light of your uh, uh, big story this week about the uh, the forty nine questions. The the forty nine questions. I think, and, and Giuliani understands this, and you can sort of hear it in what he's saying. The significance is how probing they are into what the president was thinking. So here Mueller is giving the the topics, the specific things that he wants to ask Trump's lawyers about to them in the hopes of saying, hey, guys, look, nothing to hide here. We're being up front. Why don't you sit down for an interview? And Giuliani's come along to this now, but John Dowd, the president's lawyer at the time, could see it. Highly problematic situation to put the president in where the president is being forced to explain his thoughts and intentions. Just the idea of the president having to navigate even those simple topics, but on many, many different issues, the most controversial issues of his presidency over who knows how long. You do not need to be a legal scholar to look at that and say that is highly problematic. Well, look, I mean— when 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 Comey was fired, uh, the, the administration seems to have erected a whole rationale for the firing, which ha- had nothing to do with Russia and had everything to do with his Comey's handling of the of the uh, Hillary Clinton investigation, the emails investigation. And then, you know, he, he uh, Trump goes on television, and what does he do? The first thing he does is he explains what his true state of mind was, which was I had Russia on my mind. So that's the peril there, right? And now you have Rudy saying. The reason Trump fired Comey was because Comey would not come out publicly and say that he was not under investigation. The funny thing is, is that if you look back to the reason why they initially said Comey was fired, it was because he came out and said publicly that Hillary Clinton was not going to be charged. So intellectually, I think if I follow all the bank shots around that, it doesn't add up. So what struck me about the questions, you know, obviously we've all expected that this 
perspective interview uh, would be about obstruction of justice, the firing of Comey, what the president intended. Uh, but there were questions that um, uh, were far afield from that. I mean, there were questions that went to the issue of collusion. What did he know about outreach by his campaign, including by Paul Manafort, to the Russians? What did he know about efforts during the campaign to broker a meeting between himself and Vladimir Putin? Um, What did he know about, uh, what can he tell Mueller about his relationship with um, various uh, Russians who he was trying to do business with, the Agalarovs, and then the second uh, Trump Tower meeting? Does that suggest to you that Mueller knows something about these matters and wants to nail down the president on it, or he's just checking the box, figuring he's got to ask these questions if he has them for an interview? I think if you'd like to think that Mueller is not on a fishing expedition with the president, the idea of interviewing the president, regardless of whether you think the president has a lot to answer for or not— he is the president of the United States, and to prepare him for that is a time-consuming thing, and it does take up. So you would hope that Mueller is not just trying to say, oh, well, you know, there's been a lot of press accounts about different things that are tied to you, and, you know, I'm just going to kind of take the kitchen sink and throw it at you. You would hope that there's something underlying it that needs to be answered by the president. The thing about the list that I was struck by was not as much the collusion stuff as how much stuff has piled up from his time in office including stuff that happened as recently as January. the What started two years ago is this investigation into Russia's meddling, et cetera, ties between the campaign. Now is two-thirds of the questions are about obstruction. Right. They're about what he did in office. And, and I just I just, I know we all know that, but when you take a step back, you go, wow, that's pretty yeah. remarkable. So Trump tweeted, I don't know, was it today? Anyway, tweeted oh. recently. Uh, that uh, there's no case, obstruction case, if there's no underlying crime, which we know isn't true, right? Prosecutors bring obstruction cases whether they can prove the underlying crime or not. But when you're investigating the president of the United States um, to bring an obstruction case or a perjury case where you really can't show any underlying criminal activity, that would be controversial. Of course, it happened with Bill Clinton, right, I guess. But but I think you might already be there on underlying activity. I mean, look at the different things that have come out about whether it was Mike Flynn or the the different meetings or essentially the fact that there was so much communication between the two of them. I don't think at the end of the day we're going to say, well, there was nothing going on right. between so the Trump campaign. There. Or, I mean, look, you have Papadopoulos right. you know, being told by the Russians that there's dirt. You know, if that's not an underlying crime, it's certainly an underlying issue to all this on the issue of collusion. Right. right. And on and on Michael Flynn, the fact one of the questions uh, was about the floating of pardons, uh, which does raise the issue of witness tampering. Another one of your stories, by the way, uh, and that again, that does raise the question, is Mueller just reading your stories? No, 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 no. Or but does he have something else? Well, but that's the interesting thing about that document was created in March. Our right. story on the pardons ran in April. So ah, once again, okay. to us, that would, to me, that was like, oh, that's the most interesting thing. But you know, yeah. to the reader, that's not as important. But 
So once they were again, already onto it. Once again, showing obviously, and he should. Bob Mueller knows a lot more than we do. So hey. one, so one question I have is, and we're kind of dancing around this a little bit. Uh, all forty-nine questions or topics, whatever you want to call them, they are they all relate to stories that you know have broken in the New York Times or the Washington Post or elsewhere. Many of them, your stories. I, I have to believe that um, you know. I mean, he's not. He has no obligation to be totally transparent with with the president and his lawyers. I mean, he's got to be holding back some, not just necessarily evidence that relates to these topics, but there may be other investigative strands that we don't know about. I mean, guys, they've been investigating for, what, 18 months or whatever? They've got subpoena power. As great a reporter as you are and the reporters at the Washington Post are, I mean, you know, the idea that they don't have anything beyond what we've all reported strikes me as uh, not credible. There's got to be more stuff there. I don't know if Mueller is trying to be upfront and transparent and a fair broker with the Trump lawyers, then you would think he's not trying to keep something in his back pocket because then they would say, aha, you did trick us. This is some sort of perjury trap. And I think the purpose of the meeting was to say, hey, guys, we're trying to be upfront with you. Here's what we want to talk about. But, you know, with each question... There are so many sub-questions that can be asked depending on what the answer is that um, uh, you would have to believe that Mueller you know, does have a lot more material in which they can then hammer the president or confront him with um, documents or other testimony. Um, it seems inevitable that um, there's a perjury trap there, especially given Trump's track record and attenuated relationship with the truth. So it seems to me that the odds of a of an actual interview ever taking place, whatever they were before, are much lower now. In fact, Giuliani yeah. said that. But, right? but you can I mean, say that. But if Mueller really wants to talk to him, he can subpoena him. And then right. the Supreme but Court's going to figure it out. Right. And then the courts are going to figure that out. And if you look at, I mean, you know this better than mm -hmm. anyone else, a president cannot simply reject a law enforcement request, correct? There's Would no it, precedent for, well, there, for there, resisting successfully uh, that kind of request. I, I, mean, I, I, I would argue that, yes, you know, that would seem to be settled law, but two things. One is, and we've discussed this before on the show, uh, Nixon versus USA, which is the, you know, main precedent is not 100% on point. The circumstances are very different. It was for tapes. It wasn't for testimony. The issue at hand, what Jaworski, Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor, was arguing was we need this these tapes because it is crucial evidence in an ongoing criminal trial of defendants who are who are going to be on those tapes. And we cannot, in good faith, bring this case to trial without knowing what what the defendants said or and were told oh, on the tapes. Oh, 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 but, but that's not. Oh, but hold on. How is exactly that, the same as this? Th that's true. But how is that different than I cannot look at the issue of Russia colluding in the election without talking to Donald Trump? Yes, but do, does he have an indictment 
in which that testimony is crucial. It's not crucial to the Manafort case. It's not crucial. And that's the only outstanding Well, How do you know it's not crucial to the Flynn case? Because look at the indictment, and the indictment on Manafort does not involve events during the 2016 campaign. Unless you're you assuming that, that there's nothing else that they have on Manafort right, besides like, the Right, like forest, a superseding so. indictment, well, that would have to be which a superseding is what people expect. Yeah. The, the other wild card there is this Supreme Court. And if you're, if you're Trump's lawyers, you might think, hey, we can roll the dice. We might, and, you know, with this Supreme Court, we might turn out okay. Two, two things on that. Um, yeah. One is there could well be a vacancy uh, and a new... Uh, conservative justice um, by the time any of this happens, because well. Justice Kennedy may be going. Um, and speaking of Trump's lawyers... Good luck we, trying to get a new justice you know, confirmed in this environment. But right. speaking of uh, Trump's lawyers, we have a new uh, Trump lawyer this week, uh, who I think you wrote about in the, in the, in the, in the Times. Um, and it's someone who's got a lot of experience um, you know, in, in, in this uh, kind of uh, litigation. So what do, you, what do you know about Emmett uh, Flood and, uh, and his background? And what does this? What does it hire? The hiring of him signal about the Trump strategy? I think that for every lawyer, the one dream would be to represent the president. What we've seen up until this point in this case is that every witness has had a really great lawyer, a really well experienced. You know, most of the witnesses, the high profile witnesses, very good. The president really struggled to attract that high end premier Washington talent. He ended up with John Dowd, someone that had a lot of experience, but was maybe not as um, discreet. Fair. (laughs) But this in Emmett Flood is your 1A, comes from Williams and Williams and Connolly, yeah. Has deep experience working in the White House, worked on the Clinton impeachment, helping to defend Clinton. This is your top tier lawyer. The question is, is that how long does Emmett Flood exist? Right. Like some of these other lawyers existed because they had a chance to represent the president. I, I think at a certain point, Emmett Flood, if there was behavior that he did not like, would say, I can just go back to Williams and Connolly and make a lot of money. I don't need this. Uh, very quickly, just getting back to Stormy Daniels for a moment. Um, the president uh, clearly didn't seem to be telling the truth when he said last month that he didn't know about the payment. Uh, Crew, the uh, uh, ethics watchdog group, just filed a complaint saying even if the money um, was not, the president didn't put up the money initially, uh, but he reimbursed Cohen uh, for that payment. This was a loan to Michael Cohen that was not disclosed on his financial disclosure form, and so therefore uh, this is a violation of federal law. Do they have a point? Of course. I mean, I mean, there's, you know, and I don't know election law that well, but right. the whole thing seems like if you're a prosecutor and you look at it, you say, well, I really got to get to the bottom of what, how, how did this happen and why did this happen? I mean, you had Giuliani saying, I believe, in one of these interviews in the past day that, well, you know, we're, he was just trying to prevent this thing from coming out before the election. It sounds like <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> that's why it's a <laughs> violation. Kind of a confession right there actually, by the I, president's I, lawyer. I, I actually, I want to kind of clear one thing up, and Mike, you're kind of an expert on, yeah. on campaign finance yeah. law. But if the president, if uh, yeah. Trump had just uh, given a, written a check under yeah. his name to Stormy Daniels for $130,000 uh, and asked for her 
silence. That wouldn't have been. He's allowed to. He can self fund, right? Self-fund, so but that would have been reported. If, if it's a campaign okay, contribution, got purpose it. of keeping her silent during the campaign, so it didn't interfere with his election prospects. Then it's still a, uh, a election law. But the amount isn't an issue. The amount is not an What's issue. What's the penalty for that? Um, is that like a fine or is that that's like... probably in the fine territory? Okay. If it was an illegal contribution from Cohen or from some other party, then it would be uh, then, then you're then, in John then Edwards you're territory. Yeah, right. Right. Although right. he got off. Yeah. Um, Michael Schmidt, uh, we'd love to keep you here for uh, much longer and uh, uh, probe your uh, infinite knowledge of these issues. But we have a former director of the CIA waiting. Uh, so we're going to have to kick you out. But thanks for coming on Skullduggery. And come back. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. Okay, we are joined now by General Michael Hayden, former director of the NSA and the CIA, and the author of the new book, The Assault on Intelligence and American National Security in an Age of Lies. Uh, Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. I want to start out by um, uh, actually asking you about something uh, a piece you had in the New York Times off the right. book it, that it, ran it the other day. It comes out of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it really uh, kind of uh, got my attention, and I want to ask you about it. Um, and this is what you wrote. A few months after Mr. Trump's inauguration, I got a call from a colleague who thought he might be on a very short list for a very senior position. He asked my opinion. I told him that three months earlier, I would have talked to him about his duty to serve. Now I was telling him to say no. You're a young man, I said. Don't put yourself at risk for the future. You have a lot to offer someday. That struck me as a pretty extraordinary uh, piece of advice. You're basically telling um, young people who want to serve was, their country, he, he was don't not do it. He was a very senior guy. Okay. And there's a distinction. That's All an right. important distinction, Michael. Uh, all right. So the longer quote in the book yeah. is, is uh, there's a third stage. I, I say, hey, a couple of months ago, do your duty, man. You know, you're, you're being called. And then the second portion that's not in the Times article is uh, six weeks ago I'd have said, well, let's talk. And then now at the time of the call, I said, don't do it. And then you've got the quote with, with, right. with, with my advice. But you're telling somebody not to serve I their am. country. I Well, um, uh, yeah. And for and somebody this who's come, devoted his I, life to I, serving his country. Thank you. So I'm um, a little, I'm credentialed and I understand the surprise. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the How broader context, that? Michael, was the most difficult part of the book to write was the section that is ideologically, theologically related to this. And it was commenting on, on folks like H.R. McMaster and John Kelly and Tom Bossert and, and all those other folks who responded to the call to do their duty. And it was, it was really hard for me to write because I felt the longer they were in the administration, the more their personal credentials were being threatened because they were being associated with, tied to, broader actions of the administration. I, I'll give you one specific. It's about HR. But I really go out of my way to praise HR for what he tried to do. But you call that one morning he was on the talk shows. It was right after the president had tweeted those three stupid anti-Muslim videos that the prime minister of Great Britain got all exercised right, right. about. Right. And, and HR had to, I think he was talking to Chris Wallace, and Chris wouldn't let him go. And he kept coming after him. And, and, and eventually, H.R. found himself in a position of defending th- those videos. This is the H.R. McMaster, who, who, as a colonel, was running Telafer 
out there in Western Anbar and, and whose secret sauce was tough combat power and close relationships based on respect with the local population. And I, I, I made the point for HR to say what he said required a brain and personality transplant. And then I end that chapter, that section with, with mm-hmm. these good – I know all these people, mm-hmm. all right? Um, and it's more out of sorrow than anger. It's, 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 it's more out of regret than criticism. But I end, but I end the, the, the chapter uh, along these lines with the thought, at what point do you stop being a guardrail and become an enabler and a legitimizer? And then the, I think the last line in the chapter, if memory serves, and then I think, what will we do if they leave? That's the dilemma, Mike. So there's actually another uh, stage um, or another piece of advice that you write, uh, uh, that you uh, counsel that you give to people who are actually serving younger, particularly younger, younger folks, which right. is which I thought was fascinating, which is take notes. Yeah. Now. Uh, in this day and age, we mostly <laughs> say that James Comey seems to have. Uh, but it's interesting because right. you know, in the age of you know, political investigations, the advice was always, you know, don't take notes because they'll be subpoenaed. You say take notes. Well, Why? Because this is an intelligence professional, not a law enforcement thing. All right, and I, and I, I recognize, you know, some things are forever, and <laughs> that causes problems occasionally. The, the longer context is again talking to more junior officers. The first piece of advice I give them is, pick up the oar and row. You know how to count. You know how the Electoral College works. This man is the legitimate, let me repeat that, the legitimate president of the United States. Your duty is to make him successful. That is job one. Then I go to, uh, but pay attention, okay, take notes, remember your own moral thresholds, and then I add, and you may want to keep a draft letter in your lower right-hand desk drawer. And then I get to what I think is the A resignation letter. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to be subtle in the book, but yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, And and then I get to what I think is the crux of the matter. And actually, it's the heart of the book. It's that institutions can't walk. You can walk, but your institution can't. And then I, 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 I lay on the current workforce a tremendous responsibility. Preserve the institution. We're going to need it again, despite what may be happening to it. In, in this administration. And we can go through all the chiseling that's going on with regard to the Department of Justice, the FBI, the intelligence community from, from time to time, being assaulted by the chief executive they are designed to, to serve. And, and, and then I add, look, we accommodate all presidents. We, we accommodate their learning style. I've got a piece in there about briefing George W. Bush as opposed to briefing Barack Obama. I, I've not briefed Donald Trump, but I know it's going to be different, um, that they have different focuses. They have different priorities. Um, they're, they're just different, right? And, and we accommodate. But then I say in the book that there are limits to accommodation. Right? If we are found by history, by the American people, by ourselves, by the next president, to have been too accommodating to any president, we have, we have undermined the legitimacy of our function in the American democracy. So it seems to me that the, the predicate 
for all your arguments on the book is that this president is so outside the norms and has such an attenuated relationship to the truth that um, he cannot be served in the way that other presidents uh, uh, could. So, so I, I, and, I, I, and I just not, want to point out yeah. that we have had presidents with attenuated relationships they, they, with the truth before. In they fact, have. This show begins with quotes from various presidents who yeah. have said things that clearly were not yeah. true, from Richard Nixon to Bill Clinton to George W. Bush. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you distinguish okay, two, this president sure. from them? Two thoughts, though. Let me just make one comment about the premise, all right? Okay. I'm, I'm not telling folks to pull the ripcord, all right? I mean, I, I do advise some senior folks you might not want to do this, but the other folks I'm saying, do your duty, all right? So I, I don't walk off stage in total despair. In fact, at the last line of the book, before I had to put an epilogue in, because as you know, stuff changes in, in this. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the last line of the book is, is along the lines of, we're accustomed to relying on intelligence folks and their truth-telling to protect us from our enemies. Now we need it, their truth-telling, to save us from ourselves. So that, that it, it's a charge, but it's not a despairing charge. It's a hopeful charge. Go, go, go do your duty. Now, to the, so that's my thought on the premise. To, to the question itself, here's where I think the difference is, Michael. The, um, and I actually say in the book, you know, we've had presidents who lie. We've had presidents who's argued with us. We have presidents who's disagreed with our particular version of what we think objective reality is. The difference here is this seems to be a president who bases a fair number of decisions on something other than a view of objective reality. Right? Well, you, and that's the that's the whole nub of of, of the post truth argument well, you, in the book. You actually raise the question whether Trump can distinguish between. I do. The uh, lies and the truth. Yeah. And what do you, ab- having thought about this for for yeah. a long time and written this book, what's what's your answer? I, I, to that? My my personal jury remains out. There is evidence that that he does. I'm I'm gonna pull up two or three examples. I'll be very efficient. All right. The one that's most telling for me is is you got uh, John Dickerson on the CBS Sunday Morning Show before he moved to the Daily. Um, he is interviewing the president in the West Wing, and he's almost stalking him, all right? The president wants to cut it off, and, and he's walking back towards the resolute desk, and Dickerson is still in pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and John is saying, Trump Tower, wiretapping, Obama, evidence, data, do you have evidence? Do you have evidence? And the president responds, not with any shred of data. He responds, a lot of people agree with me. People were saying, a lot of people were saying that's the nub of it, all right? The, the, I, I think the president is capable of basing action on a predetermined a priori narrative that was never based on data, but which he then uses to conduct action. I'll give you another one, all right? He ran the campaign that this nation was under an unbelievable apocalyptic threat from a few thousand Syrian refugees and that we had an absolutely dystopian vetting system for letting people in the country, neither of which are true. And yet he issues an executive order that, number one, troubled people like me because it wasn't based on fact. Number two, hammered the least fortunate in the world. And, oh, it was actually bad, besides being useless, because it told the Muslim world a view of us that was being told to them by ISIS and al-Qaeda, which is they hate us. So... Yeah, that actually goes to uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which was about impact. I mean, Trump said all these uh, things during the campaign, which were uh, disturbing uh, to uh, people 
uh, intelligence professionals right. and counterterrorism professionals like, uh, you know, we, we need to bring back waterboarding and much worse, right. or we need to kill the families of the terrorists, yep. right? To our knowledge, he has not done these things. Um, you know, how concerned are you? Uh, I mean, well, let me ask it this way: um, Is it is it possible that with Trump, there's a lot of bluster, and at the end of the day, he's not actually going to do the things he says he's going to do? And then the set, this kind of follow up to that is, you know, what what is the if you were to think about uh, Trump serving out his first term? And then perhaps being reelected and serving out four more years. So, after eight years, what is what do you imagine um, is the kind of the damage that uh, this kind of presidency could do wow. to the intelligence community? Sure, you got a lot packed in there. <laughs> I do. So, so, um, and if I forget to one aspect or another, just bring bring it up. So, so the. Um, the first thing is, I actually put a chapter, you know, after I'm done wringing my hands for three or four chapters, all right, I then have a chapter entitled, And Then What Happened? In which I walk through Korea, Afghanistan, and so on. And I try to do exactly what you said. So how is that working out? And I actually am I'm pretty forthcoming with praise for the process and the product of how the president handled Afghanistan, about which we can argue, but... You know, he, I, I get it. I there was a deliberative I, I see it. and interagency process right. that got to a decision that was the right decision. And he begins his speech at Fort Myer with, I, you know, I usually follow my instincts. All right? My instinct here was to pull out. But, and then he talks about the interagency. Holy smoke. Um, but but there, there is a broader pattern, all right? And, and the broader pattern is that the president lands on a position, usually not particularly fact-based, all right? The Iran deal is the worst deal ever. I mean, I can come up with several. And then the, the process of American governance is in all these institutions we're going to talk about in a minute. Can they survive? All these institutions now putting themselves between the president and that decision, trying to walk him back from the edge of, of that decision. And, and I, the line I use in the book, I, I, I can't repeat repeat it perfectly, but it, it says what I want to say, showing him second and third order effects, other factors bearing on the problem, what could be second and third moves down the board. Michael Gerson, uh, and I quite quote Michael in the book, uh, W's best speechwriter, second inaugural and all that. Uh, Michael says, President Trump lives in the eternal now. There, there, there is very little history. There are almost no consequences in terms of his point of view. Intelligence is all about context. It's all about history. It's all about consequence. And therefore, that you, you have the problem. Now, in terms of the danger to institutions, where do we end up in three or seven years? Um, I'm, I'm using the uh, Justice Department and the FBI as kind of the petri dish as to how is this going to work on a broader scale. And what we have is the president unarguably demanding both the institutions and their leadership that their first priority is personal loyalty to him rather than to the norms that have governed their behavior for a couple of centuries. And I, and I fear, hence my remember the, the warning before about don't do harm to the institution, we're going to have to use it again. W w where does it come down uh, when, we, when we get to a position? I'll give you a couple of for instances. Now, they're, they're footnotes so far, but they, they could actually be boldface before we're done. I watched Dan Coates, and, and he, he doesn't go out and make a whole lot of speeches, all right, and you know, doesn't pick a fight with the administration. But if you watch his testimony in the worldwide threat briefing, he actually said, you know, from Kim Jong-un's point of view, he's, he's never going to give up those weapons because they're essential to his survival. And within his framework, I'm paraphrasing, within his framework, he's right, which 
flies in the face of zero or nothing, which is the published policy. He also said in the same testimony that with the JCPOA, the, the nuclear deal, Iran is further away from a weapon than they would otherwise be, and we know more about the program than we would otherwise know. Now, my question becomes, that's right. How much do those positions, let's go, let's go to Korea. How much did the intel position on Korea, how much will it shape American expectations for the meetings with the North Koreans? How much will it shape an acceptable resolution of the problem? And, and my answer is, I'm not sure it will. And that's, and, that's, that's the dilemma. And yet, and yet, the president's winging it arguably has had some uh, positive impact, right? right? We had this extraordinary uh, development um, just the other day where the two Koreas seem to be talking yeah. to each other. So, um, yeah, no, look, and, you know, you know when I, um, the second... And, and members of Congress want to nominate the president for the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, a small number, a small number. And there's, 17, I think and there, it was. And, yeah. Well, you know, let, me, let yeah. me go off script here for a minute. Yeah. There, is a pres- there is a precedent for American presidents getting the Nobel for attendance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Do, you, do, you want, do you want to uh, elaborate on that? I mean, uh, no, I, President Obama was embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. That, that he was selected yeah. for it, all yeah. right? It wasn't yeah. for achievement. It was for promise, yeah. all right? I don't think Teddy Roosevelt was embarrassed, though. No, no, <laughs> and, and, but he had actually secured peace in a major war. <laughs> right. So, so where were we? What were, what were we talking no, about? No, I, I was just saying that— Oh, like, no, no, we, we got into this place. Yeah. So uh, I actually had a—I'm kind of uh, decomposing the book here in front of you. You know, I said I had the chapter— That's the point. Yeah, that's the point. I, I, I had the chapter of it, and then what happened? Where I talk about, well, right. you know, right. maybe a little this, a little that— I also consciously made chapter two about where we were before Donald Trump began to run. Because I really wanted, I really wanted to drive home the point. Don't in any way think that I believe we got tossed out of the Garden of Eden for a second time on November 8th. And I have my full share of complaining about where we were. And, and one of the complaints I had was that within our current definition of acceptable risk, it was inevitable that North Korea would, so on and so forth, ICBMs, nuclear weapons. And I actually say in the text, so what's the answer? Well, the answer is change your definition of acceptable risk. So I fully get it. I think any president would have really amped this up. I, I think parts of it were done very unartfully, and we may have dodged a couple of bullets be, because of the rhetoric. I mean, you know, Kim Jong-un did not go to school down the street at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And if you guys, who are pretty experienced at this, and me, fairly experienced at this, are trying to figure out what the damn tweets mean, Imagine what it must have been like for him. And, and so, and like so, to be the fly on the wall with his yeah. advisors. Yeah. Is that know, what they call strategic an- ambiguity? Yeah. And, what and, does he mean, and so I was, man? I was, what is that? Can we get the song and so play it? I was right. made nervous yeah. by that. But amping up the sanctions, diplomatic isolation, military demonstrations, check, check, check. Yeah. All good. Yeah. Let me ask you um, there, there's a, you quote a historian um, in the book, uh, Timothy Snyder. And it, it, the, the quote is, post-truth is pre-fascism, yeah. um, which seems to also in some ways go to the heart of the theme of your book. Um, do you think um, – because I'm, I was asking you about like how this plays out over the next possibly seven years. Do you think we're on some kind of road Thanks. to some version of fascism? Thank you for asking the question. I, so I begin the book with a stroll through wartime Sarajevo where I make the commentary that this is bad, but these people don't look anything – 
different than us. In, in other words, it's the that veneer of civilization. The thin veneer is, of civilization, very, as you is, as you is, say. Is very yeah. thin. All right. And and so Western civilization. By the way, I, I, I've got to add, you know, my lens is intelligence. But this isn't narrowly a book about intelligence. I got out of my zone. I talked to philosophers. I talked to historians. This, this is trying to put the intelligence experience into the broader American experience. I bought beer for 40 people in the back room of a bar in Pittsburgh saying, what are you people thinking? <laughs> in, in order to better appreciate you know, uh, what's going on. So I, I try to paint with broader strokes than, than the memoir, which is justifying that step or that step or, 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 or that step. And, and, and I come across the thought, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a longer answer, and I apologize, but I think it's very important. I, I come across the thought, and I articulate the thought, that espionage intelligence as it's conducted in the Western democracies, is as much a child of the Enlightenment as Western art or dance or literature. It, it's the Enlightenment, you know, the experience of the Enlightenment, uh, evidence-based, fact-based, fact pursuit experimental, of pursuit of truth, uh, humility in the face of complexity, um, testing hypotheses, always enough humility to, to change course and saying the data no longer supports and, and so on. And now we are in a post-truth world, Oxford Dictionary, uh, a world in which decisions are based upon feelings, emotions, preferences, loyalties, and tribalism. And you listen to the president, right? Yes, somebody asked the, the president, why this? Or what are you doing with DACA? Or what are you doing? I can, I can do this with domestic stuff too. He doesn't come back with an articulated answer based upon data. He comes back with tribe. He comes, he comes back with grievance. Mm -hmm. He comes back with, those people there, they hate you. All right? That, that is the essence of, of post-truthism. And, and um, so I, I tell the story, and you guys will appreciate this. I, so I hold my, it's a little hard on podcast, but I hold my hand up and, and go, do you know all the friction points of the Trump administration have been with intelligence, law enforcement, the courts, scholarship, science and journalism and what do they have in what do they have in common <laughs> right yeah. they're all evidence-based now to be fair because you guys and i've talked with less friendly circumstances to be fair in the past my guys the thumb yeah. in my hand are kind of viewed as separately by the other guys because of the way we'll, we gather data we'll, we'll get to that in a minute yeah. but, uh, <laughs> okay it's on our list but but right. now yeah. but now everyone recognizes we're data people and right. so we yeah. Journalism, science, intelligence are all kind of in the bunker together in the face of decision-making based upon something else. And so I, I read scholars. I, I, I had began a relationship with a fellow, a professor, A.C. Grayling, a scholar of the Enlightenment in Great Britain, who illuminated an awful lot of this to me. And I, and I talked to Taylor, whom you, you, you quoted there. If there are no facts, if there is no truth, you have no place to plant your foot to push back against autocracy and hence the quote post-fact is pre-fascism let, me, let so, me just just quickly follow up on this because uh all those professions uh people who are well educated um you know, <coughs> including isakoff by the way uh, <laughs> uh, semi-well <-educated. laughs> uh uh you know, and and you know, our real professionals. You went. You just alluded to this. You met with forty people in the back of a bar in Pittsburgh. Yeah. That was a less enlightening experience for you. It, no, no, it was very enlightening. 
All right, and, I, and I'm very I'm very careful to write about it because I am those people. All right, I mean back when you're you from guys, Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean back when we were having a different conversation, they backed me to total 100. Yeah. We're with you, Mikey. Mikey. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. And so I, I get it, um, but in this is not in the book. All right, but an additional thought that, that makes me turn this over and over again in my mind. I have lived my life thinking that I was a representative of my local folks mm-hmm. to the larger national experience, all right? That I was bringing what I learned in the Berg right. to CIA, to the Bush White House. And far more than I've ever thought before, uh, although those people were still great and they could not be nicer to me, I think they're beginning to develop in their minds that I'm no longer their representative here, but I'm here as representative back to them. That I've somehow been transformed by living in the Acela corridor. You're, you're a member. You're, you're a member you're of the swamp of, of the deep state. The deep you state. Are, uh, the epitome of the deep state. Deep perhaps. state. Career yeah. professionals governed by the rule of <laughs> right, law. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> You'll me, take that. You'll accept <laughs> that. <laughs> Another way of formulating it. Um, a few weeks ago, we had on this uh, show a former colleague of yours, Dan Hoffman. Yeah. Who'd been Moscow uh, yeah. station chief for the CIA, then chief of the Near East Division. Um, and he was quite critical of um, one of your successors, John Brennan, for his attacks on President Bush, President, I'm sorry, President Trump. Right. You serve President Bush. Uh, President Trump, um, uh, in which he's called uh, Trump corrupt, uh, a liar, somebody will end up on the dustbin of history. And Hoffman's point was um, uh, that Brennan was playing into Vladimir Putin's hands by yeah. uh, uh, accentuating Sustaining the divisions division within our yeah. country. Yeah. And that also, and I thought this was an interesting point, uh, that uh, overseas people don't distinguish uh, in the same way we do between present and former officials. And when they hear a former right. CIA director like John Brennan suggesting that the Russians have something on Trump, um, they think he knows something. Yeah. And that that <clears throat> is sending a message that undercuts the efforts of your former agency uh, to do its mission. So that's, that's – I know that. I follow that closely right. and have consciously stayed out of it. All right, but but, but, but that I, same I, argument no, no. could be used about some of what you are writing okay. in this book. Okay, so so let me tell you why I wrote what I wrote and why I didn't write what I didn't write. Okay, okay. Um, so I think I I have a lens. I think it's a valuable lens. I to try to make it. You know, my lens is intelligence, but I try to broaden my field of view. You know, I philosophers, historians, and so on. All right. So that's my best effort. Uh, I hope people enjoy reading it because I really enjoyed writing it and, and researching it. I, I have become a broader, better, better first book writer who's ever really enjoyed <laughs> writing a book. <laughs> but all right. But I point out in the book that. Even if, and I think this is my hypothesis, uh, Donald Trump is the most norm-busting president in recorded American history, those of us who would oppose him legitimately need to be very careful that we do not oppose him in a way in which we bust our own norms that should govern our profession. So I'm going to start with yours, all right, and then I'll get to mine. And so... uh, Journalism has become obsessed with Donald Trump, 
and, and, and the smallest burp, the smallest disturbance in the force will fill six to eight hours on all three seven by 24 mm-hmm. networks, even though there are a war going on over here and over there and over there. All right. So you're busting your norms. In my case, the, the Intel tribe, we've been accused. I don't know the specifics, but, you know, it has the ring of truth. We've been accused of leaking information that probably shouldn't have been made public, pushing back against some legitimate concerns about the administration. I'm also a career GI, all right? And so, you know, I never, well, rarely, I try to discipline myself, never to refer to the fellow down the street as other than the president or President Trump. No, no, not, never just use uh, the surname. So I have a challenge when I'm on air. You guys know I'm under contract to CNN, all right? Uh, and they'll ask me questions. The longer I'm on, the longer this goes. The more they ask me questions to evaluate the man, and I, I try to come back with, look, I am here to criticize or praise what it is he says, what it is he does. I have no credentials to evaluate his character. And, and so, so I will not, and I will stay away from that. And so— Isn't calling him a liar evaluating his character? Well, it, it, yeah, I, I guess it is, okay? Um, how about cultivated untruths? <laughs> that, that was—and and I, and I agonized over that. Yeah. All right. And in fact, uh, the uh, New York Times editorial guy said, are you sure you want to put that in there? And I go, when you tell something over and over again that has been demonstrably shown to be untrue, I don't have any other explanation. I'm back to Trump Tower. All right. I mean, there's no evidence. And everybody who might know has said that's not true. I have another anecdote in the book. And that actually illuminates a lot of stuff. Um, and it was recent. It kind of pushed it in right near the end. He's there talking to Pierce Morgan uh, on the on the margins of Davos, and they're talking about life and death and everything. And they get to global warming, and and the president goes into this riff about well, they used to call it global warming, but now they call it climate change because there's lots of parts of the earth are getting warmer, but other a whole bunch of parts are getting colder. And you know what? They said the ice caps were going to go away, and you know the ice caps now are at record levels. <laughs> okay, uh, no, that's true. This, he said this, and I'm going. The question I have, and this gets, I mean, it's trivial, but it's not. The question I had was, he was the president, okay? He travels with an ecosystem, right? When he's done with that interview, did anyone in that ecosystem go up to him and say, uh, a word, Mr. President? You know, because the ice caps are at record levels, okay? This is is the smallest we have ever seen them and within our ability to measure. Does any, and that comes back to the, the problem I try to articulate in the book, um, A, I, I mention a, 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 a dynamic in the book um, called metacognition. It's the ability to think about your thinking. Can you get outside yourself and look mm-hmm. at yourself thinking? And uh, it, it's, it's the ability of a director to go, well, that's not working. Or uh, a musician to say, well, I missed that note, mm-hmm. to get outside of self and if you lack metacognition, all right, even when you don't know what you're talking about, you keep talking. And I can't count the number of examples I could pull out of the record of the president doing that. And so if, if, you're, if you're off put by lie, fine. Oh, I'm not. But, I, I but, just, the, but yeah. the broader description is, is this post-truth dynamic. Right. right. So if the Democrats regain control of the House, uh, 
in November, uh, and uh, they seek out, or any members of Congress seek out your advice. Uh, should we impeach the guy? What would you tell him? I uh, 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 two realities. Number, number one, not right on my lane. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> well, I'm the intel I mean, guy. The, the predicate right. is, you know, yeah. they're asking so, you. So advice. I would make, I would make yeah. one judgment. There is no body of evidence Bob Mueller can present that would convince a Republican House of Representatives to impeach the president. Right. That's, well, that's why I said that's if, one reality. If the Democrats yeah. get back control. I, I would be really, really, really hesitant uh, to do that. Uh, impeachment's a nuclear weapon. And here, here's the problem I see. I mean, let me come at it a different way, Michael, all right? Um, this is a three-layer cake, all right, our current issue. The basic layer, the biggest layer, the most important layer is us. We're a divided nation. We've, we've lost the ability to c- communicate with one another. We have a president who recognized that as a candidate, exploited it, and frankly makes it worse as a president. And then we've got a foreign adversary who's come through the perimeter wire and, and looked at A and B above and is, is trying, trying to exploit it. My fear is that if you go after that second layer, the president, and the Democrats try to impeach him, what will be, a, what will be the effect on the basic problem, which is the broader layer, which is the broader, geo, the, the, the broader American political dialogue? And, and my thought is, as the Democrats, as Republicans would never impeach him, there's about a third of the American population out there who will view any case against the president as to have been an unlawful coup against the duly elected president of the United right. States by a bunch of people like the four of us in this room. That broader layer uh, is, is interesting to me. Uh, <laughs> and you mentioned Mueller, Mueller investigation, and, and, and you, make, you, make this, uh, you make this fascinating distinction between uh, – Collusion, ah. uh, which is which is supposed to be the you know the, the heart of, of the Mueller investigation was their collusion, but it's kind of a narrower look. And you you say, well, I don't know if there was collusion, but there was convergence. Uh, you know. So I, what what? Yeah. Tell us about what so do you mean? Remember, by I that? told you I kind of enjoyed doing the research here. You know, that is not something I had in the outline there when the page was blank and saying I'm going to build up to this word. It was it was a voyage journey of, of discovery. So I can tell this story best by using a real world example. One is really close to my heart. The whole take a knee thing. All right. Take you, a knee. Take yeah. a knee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the president goes to Huntsville. He had a rough week. Uh, he goes to Huntsville, gives a stem winder speech. Everybody's in red, it's Alabama. Football crowd. He complains about the NFL. He complains about the rules against injury. Does not appear appeal to the better angels of our nature. All right. Uh, uh, and then he goes to the SOBs who don't yep. stand for the anthem. Right. The crowd loves it. Now, to data set this, back to facts, 1,750 American athletes suit up every Sunday for the NFL. The preceding Sunday, six did something other than stand quietly at attention. So I'm thinking we're a brick shy of a load of a national crisis, right? <laughs> but the president lights the fuse. Before he gets to Washington, step two, Russian bots go crazy, all right? The three leading hashtags are take a knee, the NFL, and take the knee, which always proves that articles are the most difficult things to translate. <laughs> in, okay. And, and, and by the way, the Russians are playing both ends. You know, it tastes great and it's less filling. It's, it's patriotism and free speech. You know, they don't care. They just want to excite it. Then the alt-right media over here, uh, Alex Jones, uh, Infowars, uh, Gateway Pundit, they actually echo the themes in the Russian bots and go, go racial real fast. One, it's the demographics of the NFL. Two, my Steelers, all right, vote not to go out in Chicago the following Sunday. And then Alejandro Villanueva, the blindside tackle, 
Army Ranger, at least tries to get within sight of the flag. I've talked to Alejandro. He was not meaning to break consensus, but they take the picture. It's iconic. And, oh, who's the coach of the Steelers? Oh, yeah, African-American, Mike Tomlin. So that lights up the alt-right media, dark racial. And then it bleeds quickly, and I'll just be very candid, bleeds quickly into Fox News. Shows up on Hannity, and then it goes outward sideways in the non-news parts of Fox News. So it finally ends up showing up in the Kirby couch, okay? And then at, to complete the cycle, to, to make sure the circuit's whole, the president tweets his approval for what he's seeing on the Kirby couch. All right, do you see the – now look. Every, circle, circle of com- life right here. Everyone yeah. in that circle did it for their own reasons. The president to feed the base, the Russians because they want to mess with our heads, the alt-right because they're conspiratorial, Fox for ratings. But they all drove convergence. They all drove in the same direction. And the sum total is a more divided nation over a topic that, frankly, shouldn't have mattered. You know Uh, what? One more more phrase. And this is uh, it's hidden in the book. I should have emphasized it more. The president speaks. The Russians amplify. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. You know, it strikes me about that story. The Russians were were able to pull off this amazing intelligence coup of uh, manipulating our election and driving the conversation in uh, during the election. But they still can't get their articles right. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Michael Hayden, thanks for uh, joining us on Skullduggery. The book is The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. So what'd you think? Well, look, you know, you and I have known uh, Hayden for a long time, and uh, he has always struck me as uh, this sort of very level-headed guy who never gets too hot. Um, You know, as he said of himself, he is data-driven. And I am struck by um, the passion with which he talks about uh, this this presidency. Um, And... um, you know, to me, one of the most interesting parts of the conversation um, was, and I think you were citing his book, uh, where uh, he his advice to people who were considering going into the Trump administration was, don't do it. Um, and this is a guy who's a uh, intelligence professional. He's been in public service for decades, um, a patriot. Um, and um, the fact that he uh, would get to the point where he was advising people not to go into government, A, and B, if they're already there, to take notes, right. um, uh, was, I thought, uh, uh, fascinating. And you do have to wonder if that's what uh, Michael Hayden thinks uh, of this president and what people in the government should be doing. Um, how many people who are inside share the same perspective, uh, that they are working for a president who is essentially unhinged and uh, unable to distinguish between truth and complete falsehood. Right. And I I imagine um, that there are a lot of people in the administration, um, people in the government, um, who um, maybe have a hard time sleeping at night because they are asking the question that he asked, which is, um, are they becoming enablers? Um, Right. 
And for all of you out there who do have trouble sleeping at night, I would urge you to listen to Skullduggery as much as you can, um, <laughs> uh, or, or maybe make it your uh, wake-up call in the morning. Well, on that note, thanks to General Michael Hayden and Michael Schmidt for joining us this week. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave us a review. We'll talk to you next week. Music